So over our last couple of weeks in Acts, we've uh, seen the disciples waiting in Jerusalem. So just to get, get back in the scene of things, they're waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I kind of like, oh, I, I want to get there. Acts 2, what a beautiful chapter. But there was one more thing I felt like we needed to do. And it's not the main point. Luke is not attempting to write a little treatise on discovering the will of God in Acts chapter 1. But it is something that I think raises questions for us. So we're going to take kind of another little, go off a little bit, still in the text, but not the main point. Um, So it's while they're waiting for the Spirit, they're praying constantly, devoting themselves to prayer with one accord. And as a result of all their praying... And as a result of probably they're now searching the scriptures with a whole new light and a whole new perspective, they're seeing things and and they're praying and they see we need to bring the number of the apostles back to 12. There has to be someone to replace Judas who has defected. The question is, who's to be the 12th apostle? Right? Simple question. Uh, How is the will of God, how is the will of God in this matter to be discerned? And we know that in, in verse 2 of Acts, it, it just said, God gave or, Jesus gave orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So if only Jesus had not already ascended, if only they had thought of this just a few days earlier, right? They could have asked Jesus, uh, we're going to need a 12th, right? Who would you like? But Jesus is ascended. He's not with them physically. They cannot ask him simply to choose as he chose before. How then is the choice to be made? How would you go about it? In Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus, when he made the choice initially, he spent the whole night in prayer to God. I don't know. I mean, this is a mystery. I don't know that that Jesus came with a transcribed thing in, in his head with, uh, these are the 12, that's the list. And I don't know what, uh, what all he was praying, but I think he was praying for, for wisdom, certainly for those disciples that he would choose. For I don't know what all he was praying, but it, it certainly impacted his choice because that's what he did before he chose them. Before he chose them. And he spent the whole night, then he called his disciples to him, and he had more than 12. And from those 12, he chose 12 whom he named his apostles. Now we see the disciples following Jesus' example in your handout. So when it comes to the question of this apostolic replacement for Judas, we have to start out with the obvious assumption that they're still praying. And guess what they're praying about? Who's going to be the, next, the replacement for Judas? That's how they thought about the whole idea in the first place. And now, no doubt, they're praying that God will give them his wisdom and his blessing and cause his will to be done. So I would just start out by saying, all of life ought to be lived prayerfully. Independence upon God. It's a simple thought, but a wonderful thought and a convicting. Especially certainly when there are significant and weighty decisions to be made, we can and we should ask God for wisdom, which is, I believe, what what they were undoubtedly doing. So what do we ask God for? When we ask for wisdom, one of the things we can ask for is the wisdom of a sanctified common sense. We'll see that in a moment. Don't take it for granted that your brain's working on all cylinders, right? Pray that God gives you 
a sanctified, a God-given common sense. And, and, and in that way, we bring, we bring even our common sense back to dependence upon God and thankfulness to him. So we pray for wisdom. We can ask God for the wisdom of godly counsel. God, help me to get godly counsel. We can ask God for the wisdom to recognize which biblical principles are especially relevant in this situation. And then the wisdom to know, God, help me to, to rightly understand, using sanctified common sense again, perhaps. But, but by sanctified, I mean there's the work of the Spirit in that involved. And he's testifying with the word, illumining the word to us, and helping us to know how to rightly apply that principle to this situation. We can pray especially that in every decision that is made, God's name is honored and God's name is glorified. And that has a way of calibrating and reorienting our thinking in the right ways. The problem is, a lot of us are just impatient to make decisions and get the answer and get the one we want that will be most successful. And so we don't like going through the process of working and laboring at, 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 at seeking God. Not in some mystical sense, but seeking him according to and in and through his word. So James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I repeat one more time, and it's in your handout. All of life ought to be lived in prayerful dependence upon God. Now, certainly, though, there are some things that warrant more focused prayer than other things do. So Jesus did not spend the whole night praying to God before every single decision that he made. But he did spend the whole night praying to God before he chose the 12 apostles. So there was something that set this apart, right? This was a choice, as we've seen in previous weeks, that was very closely connected with the unfolding of salvation history. Now, salvation history is, in a sense, not unfolding right now. Because we've already come to its fulfillment in Christ. So this event of choosing the twelve apostles, it was connected with this unfolding of redemptive or salvation history, which the Bible chronicles. It was a redemptive historical choice. Uh, Let me just say, no choice you will ever make is a redemptive historical choice. Period. So there you go. You're off the hook as far as that goes. Right? And the same is true now as the disciples consider a replacement for Judas. This is a choice they're about to make that is connected with the unfolding of salvation history. And even it's it's even rendered necessary as a fulfillment of prophetic scripture. No choice you will ever make is going to be the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. So this is a choice, therefore, in your handout, of a kind that you and I will never be confronted with. It's in a category all its own, and it's going to be important for us to remember that. Maybe you can already see part of the reason why. So how is Judas' replacement to be chosen? How is the will of God, which there's a lot of talk of that, understandably so, we ought to be wanting to live according to the will of God, how is it to be discerned? We answer, first of all, with prayer and full dependence upon God. But now listen to what Peter says in verses 21 to 22. Because I think sometimes we miss these verses, 
And we're all, we, go, we skip right to the part about casting lots, right? And we think, oh, that was, a, that was easy, right? But Peter says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that it was taken up from us, that's a lot he's just said. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So here's my question to you. You think about this. How did Peter come to the conclusion that Judas's replacement must be someone who has accompanied the disciples beginning with the baptism of John? Now, he doesn't say the baptism of Jesus. He's talking. So that means someone who's accompanied them at least from before John was arrested. Basically, he's saying from the beginning, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Where, where, did, where did Peter get that idea from? There's no indication that Jesus explicitly gave him that instruction. And I, I assume not. So on the one hand, it's common sense. But it's common sense sanctified, rooted in redemptive history. So he looks at the fact that, well, the original 12 had been with Jesus from the beginning. So it's common sense that the replacement should also be. There's also the fact that the, the, the apostles are to witness to Jesus. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus says. So common sense tells me that to witness the most fully to Jesus, you must have been with him from the beginning. So they're working this through. This criteria then eliminates certain people. It, it eliminates all of Jesus' brothers. Because Jesus' brothers, we're told, were all there in the upper room. Do, are they candidates for this role? Nope, they're eliminated. Because they originally did not believe in Jesus. They're not being punished for that. But the fact is, because they didn't believe him, they weren't, they weren't with him from the beginning. All right, the one who would replace Judas must be able, Peter says, to give eyewitness testimony to Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Notice he, he says, um, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection until the day he was taken up from us in the ascension. So where did Peter get that idea from? Well, in Luke 24, Jesus said to the disciples, he didn't say, when you choose the next apostle, make sure he's this. No, but Peter looks back at what Jesus said, and Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead. You are witnesses of these things. So there you go. Clearly the one who would take Jesus' place, Judas' place, must be a witness of these things. He must be able to say, I saw him suffer and die on the cross, and I saw him raised up from the dead, and I listened to him teach about the kingdom after he was raised and watched him ascend into heaven. So that criteria eliminates a whole lot more people because you started out with 120 people in this room. So we've just eliminated a bunch, but not everyone. Finally, the one who would take the place of Judas must be a man. Peter says, of the men, aner, that's the specific word for male, of the men who have accompanied us. Now how did Peter arrive at that conclusion? Okay, let's just use common sense. First of all, Jesus originally chose 12 men. Jesus had plenty of opportunities in the number 12 to choose a woman to give some representation there. right? But common sense looks back to so when Jesus chose 12 men, 
Uh, I think it's safe to say it's the will of God that we choose a man to replace Judas. You're, you're using sanctified common sense because you prayed to God for wisdom. Now, there were devoted female disciples in the upper room. Luke specifically tells us that. They were gathered there that day. We can be sure at least some of these women had witnessed firsthand the crucifixion. They were standing there watching Jesus suffer and die on the cross. The Gospels tell us this. They were also the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appeared to them before he appeared to the men. And we can't be sure if any of these women were with Jesus from the beginning, from the baptism of John period. But even if they were, even if they met all the other criteria, they would not have been a candidate for the twelfth apostle. I'll say what I've pointed out in other, at other times. The glory of a woman is different from the glory of a man. And just because we define glory according to our culture, and I'm using the word, that's, that's false. The man and woman have distinct glories. And therefore, for a woman to be chosen as an apostle would not only be contrary to the will of God, it would bring shame to the woman. It would undermine the true glory of her womanhood. We see then, well, we see how, how convoluted and inside out and upside down we turn things in our culture and in many cases in the church. But we see then how this field of potential candidates, we started out with about 120, It's been considerably narrowed down by the application of common sense, by the application of Jesus' word, and by the application of biblical principle. So how was the will of God in this matter to be discerned? The disciples didn't say, oh, let's just cast some lots. They did a whole lot of work before that. We answer then first, prayerfully with dependence upon God. Second, by the diligent, careful application of biblical precept and principle. So just to encourage us, knowing the will of God is not a matter of divining something shrouded in mystery, which is how so many Christians treat it. But it's not that, and we ought to be thankful for that. It's a great relief. And God is not like that. God does not like hide his will and say, see if you can find it. So if you're ever acting like that, right, without meaning to, but all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm acting like God is like hiding his will, and I'm, I'm, he's kind of waiting to see if I can find it. That's false. That's not who God is. That's not what he's like. So it's not shrouded in mystery. It's rather a matter of diligently applying the revealed principles and precepts of his word. Today we can confess And a lot of this, I'm going to suddenly today quote a bit from the Baptist Confession because so much of it is so helpful. We confess with our Baptist forefathers several centuries ago that the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, for your salvation, for your faith, and for your life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. This is the will of God. Revealed here for us. We're reminded here not only of the sufficiency of Scripture, that it is sufficient for all of our life, but that it is necessary 
for the living of our life. And sometimes the reason we would rather search for something hidden is because even though that's very can be very frustrating, it saves us the work and the labor of having to be faithful and diligent students of the word. So often that that is something that ought to convict us. So we're reminded of the sufficiency of Scripture, of the necessity of Scripture, of the authority of Scripture for our lives, and therefore also of the clarity of Scripture with respect to how we live our life and the obedience that God demands to his will. But what about those cases when, after much prayer, and the application of all, as far as we know, all the relevant biblical principles and precepts, the choice that must be made is still not clear. Here in Acts chapter 1, the field has been narrowed, but there are still two qualified candidates left. They couldn't get it to one. So we read in verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Now I would just... I would just conjecture here, it's possible that there were more than just two men who met all the other qualifications we've just looked at. It's possible. Um, But maybe for other reasons, maybe age, maybe family circumstances, maybe personality and temperament, Uh, possibly, I don't know. I'm just, it was deemed it would not be wise for some of these others who were otherwise qualified by the other, all the other objective standards to, put, to be put forward for this office. And they probably all agreed. Said, no, that's not me. No, no. So after that, there are still two candidates. We've got it from 120 to 2. After a lot of work, after a lot of prayer, we've got two left. Who to all outward appearances are equally suited. Either one would do just as well for the office. We read in verses 24 to 26, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, my question to you is, would it be nice if everything was always this easy? Would it be nice? And I understand the answer, yes. I understand that. But no, it wouldn't. And the reason is because if all you had to do to discover the will of God in any given situation was cast lots, do you know what you would become? You'd become a pathetic excuse for a Christian. Right? That's what I would become. Because inevitably, it would result in a mechanical religion where we're never truly seeking after God where obedience is just external and perfunctory, and where we are robbed of the joy in your handout of knowing God personally. Sometimes we don't know what we wish for. We don't realize what we're asking for. To have a situation where we just cast lots to find the will of God would be utterly destructive of all true religion and of all true relationship with God. But still, but still, Still, though, so I'm, I'm kind of gradually working our way to where we are forced to confront this. Does this passage set any precedent for us at all? At certain times, is this a legitimate way for us to determine what God's will is? When the disciples cast lots, I'm not there yet. I'm still going to 
we're going to do something else. When the disciples cast lots in Acts chapter 1, it was because after all the work of praying and exercising common sense and applying biblical precept and principle, there were still two candidates for only one spot. See, if I have two candidates for elder and they're equally qualified, what do you do? You take them both, right? Because there's plenty of them. God doesn't give a limit for elders. But you have two candidates here for one spot of apostle. You only get one. So they only get one. Um, if they could have narrowed it to one, by all the other application of principle, they wouldn't have needed lots, I don't believe. They would have believed God's will had spoken through only one met the qualifications. But there's two for one spot. So here's the point. Uh, you, you think to, to yourself, how are you going to choose between Joseph and Matthias now? Are you going to choose by a vote, by a show of hands? That's a popularity contest. That's all that is. Casting lots was necessary for the sake of impartiality, for one thing. That's the negative reason. But there was more to it than that. You can't get out of it that easy. The, the disciples pray, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these you have chosen. So the disciples assume that there is one particular candidate they can't see the difference, but God can see the difference. There's one particular candidate who by God's special grace and by God's special appointment is suited to take the place of Judas, specifically. Now, I don't believe the point here is that one of these men was more righteous or godly or devoted or faithful than the other man. So it wasn't like, I'm literally going to be shown up if this doesn't come out for me. No, it was the point that God knows which one of these men he has suited. He has prepared for this specific role. And if he hasn't suited me and he hasn't prepared me for it, then I don't want that role. And you're going to be the most relieved person in the world that comes up, God spoke, right? So when it comes to this choice that is so full of salvation historical significance, 12 apostles, the foundation of the church, right? the fulfillment of Old Covenant Israel, that's necessitated by prophetic scriptures, this choice is. And when after earnest prayer, the diligent application of common sense, biblical precept, and principle, there's still two apparently equal candidates, then what do we need? We need God to speak. We need God to reveal his choice. But how can it be assumed that the casting of lots is going to reveal God's choice? The answer which we're going to follow it up after with more stuff, so just go along, is both wonderful and mysterious. We read in Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every judgment is from Yahweh. So the New Living Translation paraphrases like this, I think very appropriately, as far as a paraphrase goes. We may throw the dice, but Yahweh determines how they fall. Now, in our modern context, we think of throwing dice and casting lots in connection with what we call what? Chance, or whatever the other word was, I don't know. Gambling, okay, certainly. 
Yeah, and, and chance is very much associated with that. We, call, we connect it with chance. But with God, there's ultimately no such thing as chance. And I want us to grapple with that for a moment. See, with God, not even the rolling of the dice during your family game night is chance. You say, well, what does that mean? How could there be such a thing as chance with the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The point isn't that God has some deep reason that we can comprehend for why he chose when you rolled the dice for that last board game you played and it came out that number. We're not going there. That's, the point is that being who God is, there can be no such thing as chance with God. Let's put it this way. How could there be such a thing as chance with the God who knows everything not as bits and pieces of knowledge based on things external to himself, okay? In other words, God knows everything not because of there's facts out there that are external to himself that he assimilates to himself. No, but God knows all things that there are to know in one eternal, unchangeable act of knowing that is entirely internal, intrinsic, to his own being. That's, that, that's what it means. We, sometimes we confess God is immutable. God is unchanging. God is eternal. God is infinite. We have no idea what we're even talking about. But if we spend time and meditate on those things, we come to realize that this God is, there is no such thing as chance with him. Not the roll of the dice for your board game. God's knowing is not the same thing as your knowing which should warn us how we think about God's foreknowing. God's knowing is infinite. His knowing is eternal. His knowing is unchangeable. Why? This is important. Because he is infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being. His knowing is all of those things because he is all of those things. Therefore, before the world was created, God foreknew, and when we were, I'll use that word all day long, the Bible uses it, but it doesn't mean what we think it means oftentimes. God foreknew all things that would ever be, insofar as all things that will ever be are the transcript of his own infinite, eternal, and unchangeable decree. The decrees of God, what are the decrees of God? They are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, which we do not pry into, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained all things whatsoever comes to pass. So there are many who think of God's decree as the result of his foreknowing Which means that God learns, that God reacts 
to things that are independent outside of himself, that are fundamentally independent of him. So he saw something independent of him that would happen and incorporated it into his decree. Now he is not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable any longer. That is indeed to think of God in purely human categories. Instead, God's foreknowledge is his knowledge of all things, including the sparrow that falls to the ground, Jesus says, including the number of hairs on your head, Jesus says, which the number of hairs in your head now is not chance. It's not chance. The sparrow that falls to the ground outside today is not chance. All things, he foreknows, his foreknowledge is his knowledge of all things as the expression of, the working out in time of his own all-encompassing decree. Let me just say it like this. Unlike you and unlike me, God's knowledge originates with himself. Okay? Your, knowledge does not, not one, your knowledge does not originate with you. Not one bit of the knowledge you have at all originates with you. Even our knowledge of God originates with God, ultimately. And is therefore, because God's knowledge originates with himself, it is therefore infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. This is why there is ultimately no such thing as chance ever anywhere. You say, why did we just go through all that? It's because I want us to exalt God, not make him in our image, and and have have a sure comfort and foundation for our souls in the midst of whatever circumstance could come our way. Chance is the doctrine of paganism. Historically and philosophically, it's the doctrine of paganism. It is a denial of the God of the Bible. And the idea that God has decreed things because he foresaw them is an embracing of the paganistic doctrine of chance without knowing it. Many don't know that they're doing that and don't mean to do that and would not say that they're doing that, but that's consistently what we're doing. Chances the doctrine of paganism, the denial of the Bible, with God, not even the rolling of the dice during the family game night, can be called in any ultimate sense of the word, chance. Now at the same time, brothers and sisters, at the same time, fate and fatalism is also the doctrine of paganism. There are some people who suppose that we can call God's sovereignty fate. That is pagan. It is paganism. Flat out and simple. It is a denial of the God of the Bible. It is a making of God in my image. God is personal. Fate is not personal. God does not normally suspend the natural laws that he has ordained. So he's not, he's not, he's not doing this with the puppets on the strings. That's not, that's not, that's not what God's decree is. He does not ever suspend or violate the free moral agency of man. I'm not speaking of free will, but the free moral agency of man. He does not ever violate that. And he never mechanically manipulates the dice. He never mechanically manipulates the dice or the lot. And so we confess this wonderful mystery, it is in, it's in your handout, that although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God... 
The first cause all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything that befalls any by chance, brothers and sisters, or without his providence. Yet by the same providence, and this is the denial of fatalism, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, like the laws of nature, freely, like human free agency and moral choice, or contingently, in ways that are apparently random, haphazard, and arbitrary chance. It is this reality, then, that helps us to understand the proverb. Because I challenge us, I know I challenged us there, but that is the key to understanding Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every judgment is from Yahweh. We may throw the dice, but Yahweh determines how they fall. But still, because God is sovereign, because he is God, brothers and sisters, don't pry into it. Don't worry about trying to rationally make sense of it all. Bow down and worship. Just bow down and worship. Then you'll be good. Right? But if you, stop, if you wait to bow down and worship until you've kind of tried to figure something out or, or mesh it with something else that you think in your human wisdom should be, you'll never get it. Because it's worship that opens our hearts and minds to the beauty of this truth. So, anyway, in, in, is, it, is discovering the will of God then, given all that we've said, does that mean that I can just roll dice to discover his will? Is that what that means? Is that what I just said? To answer that question, we need some more biblical context. God commanded, and I'm going to try to go through this quickly, God commanded that the land of Canaan should be divided among the 12 tribes by lot. Now, God was not subject to the chance casting of lots. God wasn't saying, I'm going to leave it to chance. No. God had sovereignly decreed every roll of the dice, as it were. He decreed the lots that would be cast without taking away the contingency of the second cause. He did not manipulate the lots. He, he was not mechanically manipulating the, the dice. That's a mystery. It, it ultimately it appears to be chance, and in some sense it is chance, but it's not ultimately chance, and we leave that with God. Notice now that this is an event with salvation historical significance. They're dividing the land of Israel for the entire covenant community in your handouts. Salvation historical significance, not just for an individual, not just for you and your home with your family, what you're doing. This is for the whole covenant community. God is giving the land to his people, fulfillment of his covenant promises, as a type of the heavenly country that we now inherit, inherit in Christ. So that's a big deal. God could have revealed the tribal boundaries directly to Moses or Joshua. And then the, pro, the lot's not necessary. But the lot was very helpful because it proved that Moses and Joshua are being impartial. When you're all getting the land divided among yourself, you, know, you want to, you know, doubts creep in. You think Moses would be impartial to someone. How do we really know that he didn't get it wrong? So the lot, no one can blame Moses or Joshua. Instead, they can only affirm that their inheritance had fallen to them according to God's will. No one thought of saying, oh, it was just by chance. 
God commanded that each year on the Day of Atonement, Aaron should choose two goats. And then, now he could, Aaron could choose the goats, but then he had to cast lots for which one was going to be which. One lot for Yahweh, one lot for the scapegoat. Now here's another event with salvation historical significance. This is the Day of Atonement. And it's got significance for the entire covenant community. It's the Day of Atonement for the whole nation. See what's, there's a character to this lot casting. The point here is not that God was leaving the matter to chance. He's like, well, it doesn't really matter which goat, so let's just leave it to chance. Otherwise, he could have said, Aaron, just pick one. It doesn't matter. Instead, through the casting of lots, the choice would not be Aaron's. It would be according to God's sovereign determination because the roll of the dice is determined by God. Not based on any quality in the goat, by the way. The goats were of all, all practical purposes equal. But God determined which goat was which. Does God really care which goat? Well, that's mystery. But he determined it. During the conquest of the promised land, Achan, so again, salvation historical moment, Achan sins by taking some of the spoil of Jericho that was devoted to destruction. Now later on, people seem to get away with sins like Achan didn't. Just like in Acts, people get away with lying now, but Ananias and Sapphira didn't. That's because of the moment in salvation historical history. It was a moment in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan when that had to be taken really seriously. And it is always taken seriously, but it was in a unique way at that point. So Achan has, has sinned, and we read in Joshua 7 in the morning, Then you shall come near by your tribes, and it will be that the tribe which Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by families. The family which Yahweh takes shall come near by households. The household which Yahweh takes by lot, keep narrowing it down, shall come near man by man. And it will be that the one who is taken with the things devoted to destruction shall be burned with fire. Now, God didn't look ahead and see that, oh, the lot's going to happen to fall on Achan. Neither did he suddenly decide to manipulate the dice when he never does any other time. That the lot would fall on Achan was part of God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable decree. Worship him. Worship him. And here again is another event full of salvation historical significance for the entire covenant community, and that's why they did lots. God could have pointed Achan out directly to Joshua. would have been a lot less painful for Achan, I'm assuming, the gradual process of being uncovered and exposed. But instead, as each tribe and each family and each household and each man comes near for the casting of lots, they all are very graphically reminded of their oneness as the covenant people, that, that, that we're all part of the solidarity of the covenant people. And therefore, we need to root out this evil that is within us. Right? After God had already revealed to Samuel that Saul was to be the first king of Israel, we read in 1 Samuel 10, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. Now, what kind of event is this? A lot of salvation historical significance, first king of Israel. Second, it was significant for the entire covenant community because he's the king of all Israel. So this matters for the whole community. The casting of lots ensures Samuel can't be accused of showing favoritism to Benjamin over all the other tribes. 
or to Saul's family. So the book of Proverbs says, the cast lot puts an end to contentions and decides between the mighty ones. Matthew Henry says, by this method it would be clear to the people that Saul was appointed by God to be king. So in each of these examples, salvation historical significance, impacting the entire covenant community, the emphasis is not just negatively on avoiding charges of partiality, like make sure that we don't think we're being partial, but positively on discerning the truth or discovering the will of God. And I would suggest that so far, in each of these cases, I would, I would assume that God commanded the use of the lot. He certainly did in the first two. My guess is in all of them so far. In Nehemiah chapter 1, the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. So I want to explore this just briefly. Why did they need to bring people to live in Jerusalem? Well, there was a theological reason. Jerusalem is God's city, where the temple is, and it needs to be populated by God's people. There's also a practical reason. It's the, it's the fortified city. It needs to have people living in it, really, I, probably to defend it as well. Moreover, for the people to... But, but it's not so easy. I'm already living over here. This is my ancestral land. I don't want to leave it. So who's going who's gonna to go live in Jerusalem? How do you decide? As one commentator says, the people regarded their selection by lot as the will of God. And were thus satisfied, and at least some were glad, to do his bidding. I would point out that in this situation, God did not command the use of the lot. I don't think he commanded it here. It doesn't look like it. Neither was the lot primarily intended to discover the will of God. It wasn't like they were saying, there are specific people that are qualified and suited to live in Jerusalem. And that's why we're going to do the lot, because everyone wants to move there, but we need to find the right people to move there. That's not what they were doing. Instead, this simply enabled a difficult decision affecting the entire covenant community to be made without partiality. But in the process, what can the people do? They can trust. And they can rest in the sovereign will of God. In other words, they could trust God with the results. Okay, so that's what the lot said. I trust God with the results. Who is sovereign over all. Who has in fact decreed even the casting of that lot. They all believed the truth of Proverbs 16.33. Which, which I don't know that we really do. As being the modern enlightened Christians that we often think we are. We need to come back to the scriptures, right? And realize that, that the lot is cast into the lap by man, but it's every judgment is from Yahweh. There are other examples of lots being used where there's no salvation historical significance and where the covenant community is not involved. We think especially of when you've got a bunch of spoil and who gets the spoil? You cast lots. They divide my garments among them, the psalmist said, and for my clothing they cast lots. They're not trying to discover the will of God. Like, is it God's will that you have that or that I have that? 
And once I know God's will, I'm morally bound to obey that will. No. And yet we still confess the mystery that even then, the Lord's every decision is from Yahweh. Think about that when Haman was casting lots for when he would destroy the Jews. And it got to 12 months. And that was just the time that God wanted to unfold all of his plan, to unravel Haman's plan and turn it back on his own head. In the book of Jonah, and here's where we get to a really important point. When the pagan soldiers cast lots to find out on whose account this storm had come upon them, the lot fell on Jonah. And we're all thinking, well, how lucky was that? Because after all, these were superstitious sailors. They did not care one bit about salvation history. They were not concerned with God's covenant people, only with preserving their own lives. Now, they had some nobleness to them, as we see later, but the fact is, they just wanted to preserve their lives. So they cast lots to find out who made which God angry. Now, that is the perfect example of how lots should not be used. It is. Because sometimes we think, well, God answered it rightly, so how, can, how did they get away with that? Well, they're superstitious, and God just decreed according to his plan and took their superstition into account. God had decreed from all eternity that the lot should reveal the truth in this case. But brothers and sisters, here's the point we need to realize. God does not always decree that the lot reveal the truth. Neither does he always decree that the lot reveal his will. God has not bound himself to the lot. So under what circumstances we are all now asking, is it acceptable and safe to use the lot? The answer, I believe, is rather simple. It's acceptable to cast the lot when you are not attempting to discover the truth of a matter, and when you are not attempting to discover the will of God. By that I mean to discover God's will as that which you are then morally bound to obey. So if I was presented with a choice between two jobs, And after prayerfully weighing all the evidence and applying every relevant biblical principle and precept, getting counsel and all that, I still find it impossible to make a decision, which I think is highly unlikely. But just for the sake of argument. Flipping a coin by faith, I believe, would be perfectly legitimate. But what do I mean by that? What's your mentality in doing that? You're flipping the coin because you just cannot decide. And so you're flipping the coin not to discover the will of God which you're morally bound to obey, but simply to make a decision. And then when I say you do that by faith, I mean you trust God with the results and with the decision you make. You trust him. Come what may. You trust him with it. But even then, Even once you've flipped the coin, you are not morally bound to obey the result of the coin toss. 
Because you didn't do it to discover the will of God by which you're morally bound. That's not the way you did it in the first place. You just did it because you were paralyzed. Well, especially I'm not bound to obey the result of the coin toss. If all of a sudden other information comes to light and I'm like, oh, I really should have done that, I think, but now I'm bound by the coin toss, so I have to do this one. No. So, I flipped the coin. While we cannot rest in the result of the coin toss as revealing to us the will of God in some pagan kind of superstitious way, or as guaranteeing that now this is the job where I'll be happiest long term, that would be pagan superstition. We can rest here. We can rest in the fact that the choice we have made is encompassed within the sovereign decree of our most wise, most powerful, most holy and just and good and true and faithful God. That's Christian faith. That's not paganism. That's faith. And we can always know, as the confession says, that as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church, of his children, and disposes of all things to the good thereof. So if you happen to flip the coin, and that's what you did, you do it by faith. You, you, you make your choice in the end. If you're going to make your choice based on the coin toss, Fine, but that only happened because you were diligent with everything else. But then you flip the coin, and then, you, and then that's the choice you're still making. You trust God with that choice you're making. Trust him with it. Don't live in paralysis. Don't constantly be second-guessing. Move ahead in faith, believing that God is sovereign, and that his decree encompasses all things, and that his providence extends in a special way to you as his child. What a comfort that is. Why can we no longer cast lots to discover the truth of a matter or to discover the will of God? Why can we no longer do that? I think it should be clear by now because salvation history has come to its fulfillment in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you will never ever be faced with a situation that has salvation historical significance or that impacts the whole of God's covenant people. It was only in that context, with other qualifications added, that the people could be assured the lot would reveal to them God's will. You can never be assured of that, and I cannot today. In other words, let's just be clear that individual Israelites did not go around casting lots to discover the will of God in private matters, unrelated to the unfolding of salvation history. What would that be? Pagan superstition. Here in Acts chapter 1 then. Insofar as the disciples were casting lots to choose between two legitimate candidates and therefore avoid partiality and favoritism. And insofar as they could then rest in the result as being encompassed within the sovereign will of God, we could follow their example. We could follow that example. But... Insofar as the disciples were casting lots with the prayer that the God who knows the hearts of all men would reveal to them that will which they would then be morally bound to obey, we know we'll never be confronted with a situation where following that example is appropriate. 
In conclusion, let me return to what I said at the beginning. Knowing the will of God is not a matter of divining. Of divining something shrouded in mystery. But of prayerfully applying the revealed, not the hidden, but the revealed principles and precepts of God's word. We rejoice then today in the sufficiency of scripture, which I will read this again, that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Let me in these last statements bring together, if I could, the two elements of the will of God. We pray for the ability to live wisely according to the precepts and principles of God's word so that we might always know the blessing of God's peace and joy come what may. Remembering as we wait for a come what may that even the chance roll of the dice is from God. We are called to live each day And that's not an exaggeration. Actually, to live each day prayerfully seeking God's revealed will, which he is not hiding from you. He has put it in black and white on the pages of Scripture. Prayerfully seeking God's revealed will and the wisdom to apply it rightly, while at the same time, humbly and gladly submitting ourselves to all that he has ordained. In other words, to the infinite, eternal and unchangeable decree of our Father, who is himself infinite, eternal and unchangeable, in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's oft quoted, and rightly so, Deuteronomy sums it up. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. And we can rest in that with peace and full assurance. The secret will of God is his, not for you and me to pry into. But the things revealed belong to us, that we may do all the words of this law. And your handout, that by grace, through faith, we may do God's will. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would comfort your people in the knowledge that every roll of the dice is determined by you. Guard your people from the rationalism of paganism, which thinks of things as fate or puppets on a string. Guard.
guard your people from that from that terrible blasphemy. Guard us too from the rationalism that makes you in our image that supposes that you have decreed things because you foresaw them, which is the pagan doctrine of chance. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to bow down and worship, to submit and to surrender our minds to what your word has revealed to us about you, and that in doing that, we would not only be awed and, and humbled, but that we would be strengthened and comforted and equipped to live lives trusting you implicitly, wholly and completely, and to live lives striving always diligently to do the will that you have revealed to us. And we do thank you and praise you that in that situation, in Acts chapter 1, in that upper room, when they cast the lots, you did indeed reveal your choice for the man for that role. We thank you for your sovereignty. Let us then live every day in the light of it with joy and faithfulness and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.